continue. We are recording. Welcome back. So again, to repeat the sequence of assignments, last week, I wanted you to propose a project and um, uh, answering these questions. And uh, if you hadn't already done it, start a tracking page for your final project. This week is about the life cycle of invention. And there's two assignments for this week. One is develop a plan for dissemination of your final project. Um, if it's successful, how does it go out into the world? And then for the final presentations, these are going to be rapid fire, just a few minutes a person. And so to get through them, plus to record these for posterity, each of you are going to produce a summary slide. Uh, call it presentation.png, make it a PNG image, <clears throat> excuse me, 1280 by 20, 1024 for quick thumbnails. And you're going to make a video clip. The video clip should be about a minute long, less than or equal to a minute. It should be compressed down to less than or equal to 10 megabytes. Uh, in the design class at the end, I had a link to HTML5 video formats that play without anything installed. And I gave tips on transcoding to HTML5 video. And so you're going to make an MP4 file, 1080p HTML5, presentation MP4. Both of those go on your site. Those will keep evolving as you finish the project. But one of the assignments for this week is to get set up with the slide and the video so that you can refine it in the final push, but just the mechanics of producing them. And the very final class, I'm going to talk about project management. We're going to go through lots of final projects to see examples of what they look like. And then you're going to finish your project answering another set of questions. And after that, we'll be into the presentation. So this week's class is on the life cycle of invention. This one's a bit different. Uh, up until now, we've covered everything about how to make almost anything. Assuming success, you've now made almost anything. Um, this is the life cycle. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about managing invention, uh, then a popular topic with a lot of misunderstanding, uh, managing intellectual property and protecting inventions, then um, a bit about uh, income, how you get paid for what you have done, and then finally some of the platforms you can use um, to scale up what you've done into businesses. Okay. So first, invention. Invention may sound like an intangible thing. It's something that just happens. Um, but there's a lot you can learn about managing it. Uh, uh, Vannevar Bush was a... Um, 
very interesting uh, MIT professor um, who went on, among other things, to uh, write this report. In World War II, science in many ways won the war. And so there was interest in after the war, how do you maintain that process? And so Vannevar Bush wrote this report that led to the creation of the National Science Foundation as an agency to fund research. And so it's a very interesting document about research in, is something that you can pay for as a service, essentially. Um, it helped create a notion that you do basic research, then applied research, then commercialize. In many ways, that's not how it really happens. But it's an interesting um, window into the idea of taking what seems intangible and making it predictable. It's good background. Uh, the way I like to think about the process of invention is ready, fire, aim, not ready, aim, fire. If you do ready, aim, fire, you hit what you aim at. And so you can't be surprised. What I like to do is get ready, then fire, then aim which lets you do something you don't expect. And so just one example in my own experience, um, we were working with companies on low cost tags to track objects. This was a student thesis on that. We were trying to find ways to talk to the tags that could help distinguish multiple tags. And so we were studying material properties and we realized that we had found a way to make quantum computers. And so work I had done on the first quantum computers actually didn't come from starting to make quantum computers. It came from trying to make low-cost shoplifting tags. But it led to discovering a way to make quantum computers. Um, so the ready was the work on the materials. The fire was actually doing it and finding we had made quantum computers. And then after that, an aiming stage was the way we did it led to finding something very practical, which was the most sensitive way to interrogate molecular structure. And then the radios we made to do that were spun off as the company um, started by my, a group of my students that made the reference readers for RFID tags. And so it's an example of the sequence of, you couldn't do, do any of that by planning. You had to do the homework to be ready to do it. But shoplifting tags to quantum computers, to molecular structure, to RFID um, was the sequence of ready, fire, aim instead of ready, aim, fire. And in making that work, um, there's two recurring ingredients. One is you need traffic. And generally, you also need pain. And so an example of the traffic is um, another one of my students had developed a way to do C in 3D with electric fields. And at that time, airbags were killing infants in cars. And so a visitor to the lab saw the tomography and asked if you could put it in the car. And it ended up becoming the dominant auto industry sensor for controlling airbags. Um, we weren't looking to work in the auto industry. We didn't know anything about airbags they weren't looking at tomography with fields, um, but the traffic brought us to each other. 
and we found we had solved an important problem without realizing it. And that grew to like a hundred million dollar a year business. And so finally to relate it back to what we're doing here today, um, this kind of invention generally happens in ecosystems. This was a study um, in the ecosystem around MIT that the output of its alumni uh, businesses spun off from MIT um, falls between the economy of Russia and India. So it's the world's 10th largest economy is uh, businesses spun off from MIT, which is just a few thousand people a year, but they're working in an ecosystem where you can find tomography solves airbags or quantum computers radios become RFID readers. Um, it's very hard to do that in isolation. You need to be in an ecosystem. And so the process of invention itself really is something you can manage. And you can think of each of your fab labs locally as versions of these ecosystems, but any one fab lab isn't really a critical mass. The network of them is a critical mass. And so what we're all creating is a globally distributed ecosystem for invention. And the point of this part is invention isn't just an intangible spark that happens. It's really something you can approach in a disciplined way as a process of management. And these are some links into some of the background for how you think about managing invention itself um, as a process. It's kind of a, a social technology but it's a social technology that really works. Again, you know, the, the idea that you can produce two, $2 trillion a year from a few, few thousand people a year at a time rests not on physical infrastructure, it really rests on how you manage the process of invention. So once you do have an invention, let's go to IP. And, this class is very different from the other ones. Do speak up as I go, as I talk through this life, um, life cycle with both questions and comments. So let's say you've made the invention now. Uh, in the review, we just heard a bunch of these, a new bicycle crank load sensor, a new deformable solar tracker, um, a physical IoT construction system. Once you've made that, assuming you want to sell it, then comes the question of protecting it. And intellectual property in fab labs is a source of great misunderstanding. Uh, one of the most useful things fab labs can do is help inventors understand the limitations of patents. Um, patents have a role but for most of you, they're going to be less important than you might think. So um, in the U.S., it's done through the USPTO. Um, I'll talk about other patent offices. Um, so uh, um, I'll review biased towards U.S., but I'll, I'll identify places where uh, international patents uh, differ. Um, Two kinds of patents. There's utility patents, which is what something does, um, and those are granted 20 years from filing. And then there's design patents, 
Those are 15 years from the grant. Generally, utility patents are much more powerful. Design patents are things like curving the iPhone and having one button. It's how it looks. Utility patents are how it actually functions. And those tend to have much more teeth and much more value. Um, so when you want to get a patent, the first step is patent search. So US, in the US system, USPTO um, runs a um, uh, patent search engine. So you can find um, all the patents with Gershenfeld as an inventor. And so here, here's a patent I did with Kenny on flexural materials. In fact, I'll leave that up later to look at patents. Um, Google has a good patent search. So uh, we could find that same one here. Um, let's see, we want to find an issued one. Um, so you start with the patent search. Like the questions I asked you for your final project, um, uh, you need to see, has this been done before? Um, if you feel like it's new, it hasn't been done before, um, then uh, a crucial concept is disclosure. Um, if you publicly disclose your invention, and public disclosure means somebody you don't control, you don't know, can get access to the information. So an example would be putting it on the Fab Academy website. That's public disclosure. If you put it in the class repository, but you don't link it on the web, that's not disclosure because you need access to the repository to see it. But if you put it in the repository and link it on the web, then that's disclosure. In the US, once it's disclosed, you have a year to file. Um, in most international jurisdictions, you can't file after public disclosure. So usually you wanna make sure you file before disclosure. Um, sometimes though, what you do is you disclose to prevent filing. So for example, um, IBM has a journal and the IBM Journal of Research and Development exists in part for research articles, but one of the reasons these exist is um, if you work at IBM and you want to prevent other people from patenting something, you, you write an article to disclose it and make it public. And so you can choose to inhibit patenting defensively by publicly disclosing material so somebody else can't claim it. Once it's been disclosed, somebody else can't claim it. So assuming you want to protect it, the next step is um, you can write a full filing, but in most jurisdictions, there's a provisional. And so a provisional filing, if we here come back to this Google search, um, um, uh, is not yet the full filing. 
uh, let me make a note. Uh, a provisional is something you file that says, at this time, here's what I know. And provisionals can be very short. It can be a few page memo. You can file a paper as a provisional. Um, you could take a Fab Academy you know, class documentation and file it as a provisional. It goes on record as saying, I know this. And then you get a year to convert to a full. Uh, provisionals are cheap and quick. They're, you can do them for a few hundred dollars. They're easy to prepare. And what they do is they get you on record with the inventions. Um, you have a year to decide whether or not to convert. And so in my lab at MIT, we file lots of provisionals, but then we down select and only a fraction of them become full patent filing. Um, the year does get subtracted from the duration of the patent. So if you know you want to file, you should file, but you do a provisional if something's emerging and you're not quite sure what the invention is and you want to get it on record. So then comes the conversion. Assuming you want to go from a provisional to a full patent, uh, a patent has to be a teaching. Uh, the patent has to teach somebody skilled in the art how to practice your invention. There's two parts to the patent. There's a specification and then there's claims. And so if we look at a patent, if we take uh, this one, um, the, um, the specification is narrative. It's where you tell a story about this is the invention and this is what it does and here's what came before and here's how you do it. And you have lots of pictures that go with it. Um, the claims are this very precise thing and it's a real art writing them. The claim is actually what the patent covers. So the legal status of the patent doesn't depend on the description, it depends on the claims. The examiner reads the description to understand the patent, but the only thing that matters for what you're protecting is what's actually in the claims. And these are written like a tree. You start with a broad claim for the area, and then you drill down and you specialize it in lots of subclaims. Um, if the claims are too general, the application will be rejected. If they're too narrow, it might pass, but the patent isn't very useful. And if you claim unrelated things, the examiner will make you separate them. And so there's a real art for general versus specific and broad versus uh, bounded for the scope of, of writing patent claims. Um, when you get to the full filing for a utility patent, then there's multiple types. So um, you can patent the composition of how something is made. You can patent the method of doing something. You can patent an apparatus that's a thing that does something. You can patent the manufacturer that's the output of making something. Those are all types of patents you can file. Um, the... Um, 
So once you draft your patent, it then goes to the patent examination. Um, patent examination is a really complex, messy sort of process. Uh, so the standards for evaluating a patent is, is it novel? Is this a new thing? Second is, is it not obvious? It could be new but obvious, so it has to be novel but not obvious. And then the third one is, it has to have utility. Is it useful? So the checklist is novel, non-obvious, and useful to get a patent. Now, one of the crazy parts of patent examination, and this has part to do with the weakness of patents, is in addition, the patent examiner checks to see if the patent is possible. You used to have to actually physically submit an apparatus. That's no longer true. The examiner checks if it's possible, but as a result, there are lots of patents granted that are impossible that violate physical law because the examiners don't know better. And so um, if you do a patent search, for example, for zero point energy, there's a whole group of kooks that believe you can take energy from the vacuum. So these are notorious patents. This is a patent for quantum vacuum energy extraction, which means it's a perpetual motion machine. If this worked, you could make infinite free energy. And just physically, you can't. Um, this is some mix between just hooks and, but even worse than that is people preying on investors. And the patent examiners often aren't the most profound scientists. And so patents are granted for all kinds of crazy stuff that just violates physics. Um, zero point energy is one um, light, light, time curve. Um, these are patents for um, time travel. Um, again, just it's nonsense. You, it, um, so that you get a patent doesn't mean it works. And lots of things are patented that can't work. And so you, a patent is not an endorsement of the profundity of your ideas. Just all kinds of crap is patented. A patent is you went through the process. It's a very low bar. It's, it's just not that hard to get uh, patents. And it doesn't mean a, a deep endorsement of an important idea. You should, ju just the fact that a patent exists, you should be skeptical. Um, a really messy area is uh, there are patents on genes, patents on business processes, and patents on software. And the, all of these are very aspect areas of litigation. Whether and how you can patent these is a moving target, and lots of dollars is spent on lawyers fighting over whether you can patent them. Uh, there is no global patent. So you patent in jurisdictions. Uh, there's a patent. Um, PCT, a patent cooperation treaty um, that involves countries all around the world for PCT. And so 
when you file your patent, you can file with PCT, but that doesn't do what you think it does. It registers your patent with all the bodies around the world, but to actually get the patent, you still need to go through the nationalization. It's a, it's a common way to submit a patent, but if you want the patent to apply in Armenia or Chile, you have to go through the patent office for Armenia or Chile. Um, in Europe, there's an EPO, a European Patent Office, and this also is a moving target. The EPO isn't yet a single global European patent. It coordinates the national patent offices. Um, you still need to go through the nationalization in each place you want it to apply. And again, that's a moving target. There's a move towards having a common single European patent, but that's still uh, evolving. Uh, patents used to be first to file, and so there's a race to get your patent in. Sorry, I said that wrong. Uh, patents used to be first to invent, and so whoever had the idea first got the patent. And that means you had to prove you had the idea and people would keep careful lab notebooks and you would have somebody witness it and sign your lab notebook to prove you had the idea. And it led to lots of litigation. Uh, the US, most of the world moved to first to file. The US was a holdout. It finally moved to first to file. And so now patenting is first to file. It doesn't matter who had the idea first. It just matters who submits the idea. And so there's still litigation, um, but it's more narrow. It's just who gets the filing in. And so that's why provisionals are so important because provisionals count as first to file. So if you think you want to patent something, you need to get, get it on file. And the usual way you do that is with a um, provisional. So if all of that works, you get your patent. Um, then you need to maintain it. And so patent maintenance, um, one part of that is you need to pay fees to keep the patent alive. Um, but the other is um, uh, you need to show that you're actively maintaining the patent. And so if you let it lie fallow and people infringe, if you later try to litigate, they, they can argue that the patent wasn't being defended, so you need to keep it active. And that finally comes to the heart of this discussion. Um, inventors show up with, here's my invention, I'm going to patent my invention, and that'll give me a business, and that'll give me money, and then I'll be rich. Every step of that chain of reasoning is wrong. Um, patents don't do what most people think. A patent doesn't protect you. All the patent does is give you access to the court system to litigate. The world is full of bitter small inventors where you invent something and a big company goes ahead and steals your invention. And then you hold up your patent and say, no, I have a patent, you can't do that. And then they say, that's fine take us to court. And they have more lawyers than you and their lawyers are better than you and their lawyers are very expensive. 
and you get tangled up in court. So when you have your patent, you can't go running to the U.S. or whatever nationality patent office and say, ooh, I've been infringed. The patent office will say, tough, go to court. And then you need to file a court case. And this can take years and you need lots of lawyers. So the important thing to know is the patent doesn't protect you. All it does is give you access to the court system to litigate to protect. Um, and so that leads to, for a patent to have use, the first thing is you have to identify infringement. You need to recognize when somebody is infringing. Then there has to be a barrier to infringement to make it worth doing. So. A project in my lab is to make robots to build jumbo jets. And there's maybe five companies on earth that can practice that patent. And to do it, you need a billion dollar investment. And so for those, we file patents because there's a barrier to infringement and you can identify infringement. Almost anything you can do in a fab lab, by definition, doesn't meet that standard. If you can make it in a fab lab, first, there's not a barrier to infringement. All you need is a fab lab to practice the patent. And second, it's very hard to identify infringement because you can't check on all the fab labs around the world. And so um, what you can do in a fab lab doesn't meet the standards for where a patent is useful. And it gets worse than that. Um, this is an evolving legal area. There was just a recent court case. Um, there are patent trolls and what are called non-practicing entities. And uh, they've been centered around a district in Texas. Um, and I've had nasty lawsuits in things I've done with this. What these do are they'll buy up a bunch of patents that may be barely related to what you're doing. Um, many of these could be submarine patents. They sort of keep them quiet. And then they'll pop up and they'll say, you're infringing my patents, you need to pay me. And they're non-practicing entities, meaning they're not actually running a business. They're just um, making a business from filing on patent infringements. And they'll claim you're infringing on their patents and then you need to fight against them. And lots of people would give up and just agree to settle to make the lawsuit go away. And this district in Texas had a thriving business in all the legal businesses around the courthouse, and it was very friendly to these non-practicing entities. Uh, there was a recent Supreme Court case um, that said, you can't go shopping for where you file. You actually need to be practicing in the district to try to cut these back. But not only do you need to litigate to protect your patent? Um, you may be the subject of litigation from a patent troll claiming you're infringing on their patent. So finally, what all that adds up to is a provisional is about 100. You can do it for $100. Um, submitting a patent filing you can do for, these are costs have come down. You can do it for about $1,000. Issuing a patent through the whole process of examination might cost $10,000. And then nationalizing it 
and doing maintenance on it might cost $100,000. So it's low cost to get started, but a big cost to progress through that. So um, patents can be important for investors. Um, investors may want to see that you have a patent. But the general comment is, unless you're doing something where you know you can identify when somebody infringes you, and infringement is hard, not easy, um, patents won't help you. So Jens could patent the design of the Hank. It would meet the standards for patenting. But he would have to have spies in every fab lab on Earth, and he would have to saw, serve legal letters to every fab lab on Earth to make sure they're not infringing, and it, it, you just can't do it. So you should patents only have use if not only are they novel, non-obvious, useful, um, but you're prepared to spend these larger amounts of money through the life cycle. You know you can identify infringement, and there's a barrier to infringement. That makes sense for things that need big investments. For things that need substantial investment, it, it's actually a good thing to do. It helps you get a return for the large investment. Otherwise, um, it's a bad thing to do. And so the world is full of bitter small inventors. And what you should take away from all of this is typically for something you invent in a fab lab, what you want is impact and income and a patent has very little to do with that. So then come copyrights. Uh, patents might get too much attention. Uh, copyrights get too little attention. So in the US, they're handled by the uh, Copyright Office. A copyright is for a creative work, an original work of authorship. So um, a story about a boy who has a scar and goes to a wizarding school is a creative work and gets a um, copyright. But the work you've been doing for Fab Academy is a creative work. So CAD designs, software programs, electrical circuits, um, uh, integrated circuit math, are creative works and they can be protected with copyrights. So one of the things Intel does on a billion dollar development of a new processor is protect the masks for the processor as authorship, as a creative work. So just like you protect music or movies, you can protect engineering not for the design itself is the creative work, but the design files themselves is the creative work. Um, copyright rates regulate the, the permission to reproduce the work, to modify the work, to distribute the work, to perform the work, and display the work. And what's interesting about copyrights is they're secured on creation. You don't need to file for a copyright. You just simply need to create a creative work. Um, there's a standard copyright symbol. Um, 
And you can just put the copyright symbol to say, this is a creative work. I'm claiming a copyright on it. You can include a statement to say, this is a creative work to put a notice on it. Um, you can register. Um, so you can go to a copyright office and register, but you don't have to register to claim the copyright. Um, it just helps create a paper trail. Now, if you claim a copyright, um, but it infringes another one, they can litigate. So if you claim a copyright on a boy with two scars on his forehead going to a wizarding school, um, J.K. Rowling could say, no, that's too close, that infringes, and go to court, and the court would judge that. Um, but all you need to do to get a copyright is claim a copyright. And those um, last for your lifetime plus 70 years. And anybody who wants to practice your work, um, uh, let me make a note. Um, so if Jens copyrights the hang, all he needs to say is this is a creative work. Um, if somebody reproduces exactly that, um, they would then be infringing just like you would infringe on the book or the movie. Um, now, they could um, make the hank without infringing the copyright if they do it in a clean room. And this is a common thing. If you put a bunch of engineers in a room, you prove they've never seen the design files, they, all the, they don't know anything about the implementation, and from scratch, they redesign the whole thing. If you do a clean room redesign, so it ends up working like the Hank, that's fine. What you're protecting is not the embodiment of the Hank, you're protecting the design files. But that's a high threshold. Um, if a company wants to sell it, it's likely to be much easier to make a deal with Jens to get his files and then just improve them rather than redo it from scratch. So, Copyrights compared to patents are very easy to get, but they have real um, value commercially. Um, a lot of work goes into what you've created as a creative work. It's a lot of work to reproduce it from scratch. And so there can be real commercial value in licensing the copyright for what you've done as a creative design work. Um, so there's uh, commercial licenses where you just simply pay, you keep the design secret and you pay for them. Largely, um, uh, there's been a big move, of course, towards open source, but there's a misunderstanding. Open source is not at all the same as free. Open source means you freely share the source code. There may or may not be payment. Free is just free. So open source and free are orthogonal concepts. Um, there are lots of different lineages of open source licenses. Um, uh, Creative Commons is a whole suite of less licenses that has a very strong legal footing. Uh, GNU is one of the earliest ones that's been through multiple versions. Um, uh, BSD is another early one through multiple, um, this MIT license dates back to 
uh, things like uh, X Windows, Apache did their own license. Each of these differ very slight, have slight differences in what you claim, what you don't claim. They're fairly long. There's a, you know, they're, they're long licenses that go into them. Uh, a number of years ago with MIT's legal department, I worked out this very simple sentence. Um, the reason I did this was um, work from my lab that goes into fab labs often mixes corporate funding, government funding, money from all different sources. And so I couldn't declare a single model that applied to all the sources of funding. And the other thing is I didn't want to take like a little program and put in a giant many page legal document. And so what this says is the work can be reproduced, modified, distributed, performed, and displayed for any purpose. Those are the rights of a copyright holder, but must acknowledge the project. And so what I'm saying is you can do what you want because it doesn't matter what I say, you'll do it anyway, um, but you need to acknowledge the lineage of where it came from. And then I say, um, I retain the copyright. I designed this, this is still my creative work. You can do what you want, but I still retain the copyright. And then I say, you're on your own. Um, I don't take any liability for what you did. And so this means I'm still the copyright owner and I could choose to license it to a company that wants to commercialize it um, based on the design files. But it also means I share it with anybody who wants to do anything. And so it's, it's a, just a very terse, simple subset. These other license, licenses go into much more detail. And in fact, this isn't really legally, um, doesn't have much legal standing. If a company is going to take out a license, they want the pages of legalese. And so we've had companies do commercial licenses with pages of legalese on work covered by this. This just lets anybody do what they want, but you can still build bigger licenses on top of that. So that's copyrights. Patents might be overvalued in uh, fab labs. Copyrights are undervalued because again, copyrights apply to your engineering work as a creative authorship. Then finally, trademarks. Um, there's a trademark uh, office. Go ahead. Copyright. Yeah. Sorry. Um, you mentioned the, the the history of the MIT license. Um, you said you still own the copyright when you apply the MIT license, but you allow uh, anybody to basically do anything. So my question is, why would a company ask you to 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 offer a different license <laughs> if they can do anything anyway. So it's a crucial question and I'm going to come back to that when I talk about income. The reason is a couplefold. The first is this, if the company is going to spend millions of dollars, this doesn't give them enough protection. Um, there's a series of things they want to know, which is, do I warrant I created it? Can I clearly say it's mine to give to them. Do I commit to transferring it to them and supporting them to use it? You know, the, the pedigree is one thing they, that they want. Um, there's another big thing they want, which is if I just toss the files over the transom, 
they don't really know how to use it. So what they want is the people and the understanding that goes with the files. And so part of the big document is technology transfer, how we're going to teach them to use it, how we're going to help them use it, um, the knowledge that goes with the files. People who just get the files, you know, they're just looking through a straw at it. They don't actually get to work, you know, with, with the inventor on the commercialization. And so it's a key question. There's a lot of value you can add to just having the files be open. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> yep. And I'll come back to that in a minute when we talk about money. So trademarks are very different from copyrights. So McDonald's is a trademark. Um, uh, you, it, it's a trademark protecting the name of the invention, the, the name of the product. Um, uh, trademarks, um, what's nasty about them is if you want to, so uh, it commonly comes up with fab lab. Somebody will say somebody called themselves a fab lab, but they're not a fab lab. What do we do? And um, if, if we trademark Fab Lab, it would mean you have to write Fab Lab you know, TM, Fab Lab trademark. Um, you need to identify it as a mark, as a protected brand. Um, you know, the, I don't know, you deserve a break today. Um, so, you know, the, um, uh, oh, actually, it's interesting. McDonald's dropped the rights for it. But some, you know, for many years, McDonald's tried to protect you deserve a break today. And so to protect a trademark, you need to put a symbol next to it that says it's a trademark. And to be valid, you have to challenge anybody who infringes on your trademark. You, if you claim a trademark, but you don't defend it, it's not valid. So to tr protect Fab Labs as a trademark, you couldn't say Fab Lab. You have to say Fab Lab TM, trademark, every time. You have to have a little graphic to say it's a trademark. And anytime anybody claims Fab Lab, you have to serve them a nasty legal letter saying you're infringing on our mark. And so it can make sense for a commercial line of business, but it's just the wrong look and feel. We didn't want to do that for Fab Labs. That we protect Fab Labs by if you claim to be a Fab Lab and not, you can't deliver on what Fab Labs do. We protect it by being ahead of, you know, you get left behind if you're not actually a fab lab. Tra trademarks only make sense if you're really protecting a commercial brand. It's not useful for IP protection. Um, so again, out of all of that, takeaway, copyrights have lots of value. Um, generally, for most things that happen in fab labs, that's what you want. Patents make sense only if there's a real scaling path for large investment. And again, copyright is unrelated to open versus free. You can be closed source, open source, paid or free, with or without a copyright. Those are all sort of perpendicular axes. And so generally it makes great sense for you, the inventor, to claim copyright on your invention you can decide then how you want to distribute, whether it's open or closed source and free or paid, but the copyright is establishing your authorship. So then that comes to 
generally the, you know, the inventor in the lab trying to get the patent, what they really want is the benefits of the patent. And the obvious one is they want to make money from it. Um, you might want to, um, uh, but there are other reasons uh, to try to get income from it. It's for the impact on society. It's for um, creating environments you want to work in. Um, one of the um, uh, secrets is um, if you look at this number that MIT output falls between India and Russia, um, much of this doesn't start with, I have a vision of getting rich. Uh, much of it starts with, um, like, um, my, the students started by my companies. They actually didn't start out making RFID readers. They wanted to do, make the world smart. They wanted to build intelligence into everyday objects. But the real reason they started the company is they didn't like any of the companies offering them jobs. They wanted to create a place to work where they'd be happy. And so um, the business was driven less by visions of wealth and more by creating an environment they wanted to work in with a social impact they wanted to create. And that's really important. Um, businesses that start with here's the plan and here I'm, how I'm going to get rich tend to not work. The businesses that have had really big successes tend to start with here's the culture I want to create in the workplace and here's the impact I want to have on society. Not Here's my plan for getting rich. Um, you know, in many ways, the best way to make a business to get rich is to not try to make a business to get rich, to have something deeper that you believe in. Um, so next, a very common mistake is to assume you invent something in the fab lab, and so the business is the thing you made. One of the worst ways to make a business in a fab lab is to sell something you invent. That may sound crazy given what we just spent the last hour on, but the reason is fabrication businesses are hard. They're hard to scale. I'll talk about that. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, a, a connecting thread on many of the most successful fab lab businesses is you don't sell the thing in all different ways you sell the benefit of the thing. So like um, uh, neuro robotics, um, uh, from Barcelona, Chirag and others developed drones. Um, Nero that came out from it, rather than selling drones, what they're doing is they're selling geospatial data the drones can produce. And so they work with groups to do projects to build custom data sets on their drones. And so along with the product, one thing you can sell are the consumables, the materials the product needs. One is just the license. You don't sell the product. You sell a license that lets other people make your product. And again, to that last question, even if the design is open, the license can have value if it adds teeth, if it adds value. Um, you can sell advertising. 
it took Google many years to figure out Google doesn't sell search. Google gives away search, their business. They sell the benefits of searching through advertising on the platform, but the advertising aren't big banner ads, it's just context. And so you can sell advertising of corporate placement on the platform you're using. You can sell creating a platform so to connect. Um, you can sell infrastructure and um, many of the most powerful businesses sell services. So um, IBM uh, is the only computer that survived from the mini com company from the mini computer era. And IBM almost completely sold off making computers and almost its whole business is computing services. And over and over, that's the recurring lesson. So one kind of service is operating the system. One is customizing the system. One is selling knowledge, education. Um, one is selling entertainment. One is selling the impact. One is selling knowledge creation. And so there are all sorts of examples of fab labs selling those things. Um, Tomas Diaz just submitted a multi-million dollar EU program in research over the network of fab labs. Um, uh, Blair Evans at Insight Focus in Detroit, an important part of his funding is impact on the lives of at-risk youth in his community, or the same thing in the labs in Belfast and Derry in Northern Ireland. Um, they're impacting the lives of people in the community, but they're selling that in a very precise way. They, they measure the change in the lives of the people affected. They quantify that. You, you compare it to the existing social services on offer, and they sort of monetize community transformation. The Fab Academy we're doing right now is clearly uh, education. For the labs doing Fab Academy, they're helping provide education as part of their sustainability. A growing thing is there's eco-tourism. There's what you can think of as techno-tourism, where you, you know, lots of tourists come to Barcelona and then until the pubs open, don't know what to do. You know, you, you can have them come to the lab and do projects as entertainment. And so over and over, um, let's see, the, um, there have been a number of Fab Lab projects. Many cities um, bring in outside providers for citywide internet. Fab Labs can make antennas and radios. And so an example of an infrastructure project is Fab Labs getting investment to create community scale infrastructure like community wireless. And over and over, fab labs have struggled with, here's a little invention, I want to scale up a big business around it. But many of the most successful fab labs over many years um, get funded from the services they provide. And one of the important parts of that is generally, Sorry. one fab lab by itself has a hard time doing that. To do that, you really need to be in network. The power in providing these services, like Fab Academy, one lab by itself couldn't do everything we're doing here. You need this whole network of labs to offer it. And so 
Um, Neil? Yep. Sorry, do you have inform more information about the Fab Labs uh, helping to create infrastructure as the Wi-Fi infrastructure? Yeah, I think that, um, uh, that's a moving target. The best context for that is the Fab City project. So uh, again, what Tomas is now focused on is this is a group of cities collaborating to create infrastructure using Fab Labs as community investment. And so th there's a number of anecdotal projects. Um, Fab.city is aiming at just what I was commenting on and doing that in a coordinated way across them. Um, and so Fab City is a good starting point with Tomas on that. Okay, thank you. Okay, so in the last um, dot-com boom, I'd say the biggest lesson that let Google and Facebook and you know the companies that survive survive is this point that generally they don't sell the thing you see, they give away the thing you see. You might give away making things, but you sell in all these other ways the benefits of having done something. It's not an obvious point that the real value in Fab Lab businesses is the impact they have, which often doesn't mean the thing that you make. It's, it's the consequence of making it. Somebody had a question? Yeah, um, in France, there is a superstore, a mega store, Called uh, Carrefour, and they use the name Fab Lab for 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 selling every sort of things, and they are so big uh, in 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 comparison of the Fab Labs community in France or in Switzerland or I don't know. That, that what what can we do? What will be the best? Um, yeah. So move? yeah. So um, when big company starts doing it in a big way, this has happened a couple times. Um, We've had groups try to sort of hijack Fab Lab as a corporate brand. Um, what we do with them, and, and this isn't that hard to do, is um, we send them a, a passive aggressive letter that says, I'm happy to see you're interested in Fab Labs. Oh, by the way, they've been running for a decade. There's a thousand of them. They, they've been doubling a year and a half. Here's a for-profit company. Here's a non-profit company. Here's press coverage. Here's books. You snow them under all of the prior use of Fab Lab. And what it does is it warns them off to make clear um, there's no way they can protect it. And so find a local uh, lawyer. Can say it? Go ahead. Is it, is it possible to have the letters, the, the typical letters, in, in your, uh, in your uh, course? Uh, so we can translate it in in our main language. Oh, I yeah. I, well, the reason we, we should do this as a new project. Uh, the reason I say that is the ones we've done are old enough. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know. Let's make this a little project just over the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, we can connect it to here. I'll make it. Let me make a note. Um, there's a few people working on a portal for the whole Fab Lab ecosystem. And so we could add to that a thread on the, this letter. And the letter just says, you know, here's the history of the use of the term. Here's all the uses of the term, you know, he, uh, you know that, that you can use to warn them off. We can make that part of the portal project. But, but let me come back to um, 
and let me make a note here. Um, we will do that, but the important thing to be aware of is you have to kind of pull on strings, you can't push on strings. And what that means is if somebody is insistent on calling what they're doing a fab lab, in the end, we have a limited ability to stop that. But if they're calling what they're calling a fab lab, doesn't mean they can offer fab academy. It doesn't mean they get the deals with our vendors. It doesn't mean they come to the fab event. Um, over and over, we leave these sort of things behind because they, they can't offer the benefits of the network. And so it's not just legal. Part of our job is to make the benefits of the network such that if you're not part of it, you don't get value and you see the value of opting in to join it. So you know, there's a responsibility for us to make the value of being a real fab lab so good that, that you want to be a real fab lab. R rather than arguing against it, we want to stay ahead of them. Thanks. So, um, so once it's time to make the company, recognizing that you might not want to sell the widget, you sell the benefits of widget making. Um, you can make for-profit companies, and those range from a sole proprietor to a partnership to limited liability to a corporation as a hierarchy. You can create a nonprofit, and often a nonprofit is the best way to make a business because nonprofits can take all sorts of money that for-profits can't. So even if you want income, you can get income from a nonprofit and they're very large nonprofits. And so um, then there's hybrid and there's multiple bottom lines. Um, so um, uh, Mozilla behind Firefox has a corporation and it's linked to a foundation. And so they have a for-profit arm and a nonprofit arm that can take both uh, commercial investment, but also philanthropic investment. And so often the best thing is hybrids that mix for a nonprofit. So then it's, it's time to fund your business. Um, and traditionally funding came from venture capitalists and it has a role, um, but uh, um, uh, in many ways, there's a pendulum swing against it. Um, there's incubators that I'll talk about that can help invest for part of your company. Um, there's angels, which are just you know, high net worth people who invest. You can get money from friends and family. You can crowdsource um, from platforms like Kickstarter. You can get loans. But one of the most interesting ways to start businesses is uh, purchase commitments related to bootstrapping. So they, what this does is in the Fab Academy, um, if, let's see, we had the example of the scoreboard. So last year, there was this lovely project from Torino of a high production value scoreboard. Um, And so you use the Fab Academy and the Fab Lab to develop this up to this point. You don't need to spend significant amount of money to get it to that point. Um, but then what you do is you get a purchase commitment. So 
One version would be you have somebody that a store like, you know, Carrefour's Fab Lab and you say, if I can produce a hundred of these for 25 euros each, would you buy them? Then with that purchase commitment, you go to a bank and you get a bank loan against the purchase commitment and then use the bank loan to start up the business. But you haven't actually given away any equity. There's no shares. You don't have an investor. You just have a loan against a, a purchase commitment. And that's a really nice way to spin up a business because you retain control. You don't have to give anything away. And the reason that matters is, first of all, almost any business plan fails when it hits reality. So the Thing Magic business started with sort of animating the everyday world. And it turns out the business was making agile RFID radios. And so whatever your business plan is, when it hits reality, it's likely to be wrong and change. So you need to be prepared for that. Um, a common issue is in the beginning, you're the inventor, you're excited, this is all fun. And then when it begins to get traction, it ends up, you end up being very unhappy. When you go from 10 to tens of employees, that's when you start having theft in the workplace or sexual harassment or, you know, people not showing up for work. And that's when you then need a human relations department. And then you need, and then you get lawsuits. And all these, things, all these things you hate in big companies, you start discovering you need them as you grow. And so a common thing is the fun of the beginning starts to become not fun, and you have to start to build in a, mat, a, a management team. Then a, a common failing is even if you're doing great business, you have a cash flow between the money you need to deliver the orders and when the billing comes and you have trouble scaling. And then finally, if you have investors, they want to get their money out, depending on the type of investor, and they want you not to keep growing the business, um, but get out of the business and exit. And so depending on the type of money you get, it can really impact the life cycle of it. And so finally, for hardware, there's been a lot of development of um, accelerators and incubators. So PCH is one of the biggest contract manufacturers. A lot of the products around you come from PCH. Um, Highway One is a uh, incubator accelerator. Um, and what these do is they've matured. So this is a good one where you can come in with your invention and then they'll help you re refine it for manufacturing. They'll help you get uh, protection help get investors. They'll take some of your company, but they, they're not just predatory. They're really adding value. Um, Flextronics, which has uh, recently been renamed Flex, is one of the biggest contract manufacturer. They have a very active incubation program. Um, Dragon Innovation is another one. Um, uh, Bolt um, uh, is incubation. Uh, Seed is an important um, manufacturer in the Shenzhen ecosystem. Hacks in Shenzhen is a, uh, one of the most important accelerators. All of these do versions of helping you commercialize your investment 
including arrangements with manufacturers, larger investment, help with management, help with sales, tax, the whole life cycle. In return, they take part of your company, but there's enough competition in these that these, these ones have matured. And generally, they're really nice to deal with. They add value and they help reduce the threshold for you. Um, then there's things like factory for all is if you want to have more control, but this exposes on the back end, for example, Shenzhen manufacturing, HW Trek is another one of these platforms that exposes the back end manufacturing to make it more accessible. Um, Amazon has Launchpad, which is aimed at selling short run products from startups and working with startups on producing them. And so Amazon's growing into um, embracing startups as part of the uh, uh, vendors on its platform. Um, as you go down this path, um, one of the things um, you generally need are various kinds of certifications. So in the US, um, there's NRTL, testing labs. Um, the best known of those is UL. And so this is a really confusing area. Depending on the type of product, depending on where you are in the country, which can vary on the state and even the city, you might need testing from one of these to be able to sell the product. And so in the US, these testing labs do that. And this is fairly expensive. This ranges from thousands to tens of thousands of dollars to certify that your product is safe. And there's a huge range of which products need that. And there's also a lot of sort of ripping off of people putting the certification on illegally if they didn't even get it. Now, what's really weird is in the EU, um, the EU version of the UL is CE. But for, for many products in the EU system, you need to certify it meets all the health and safety rules. But bizarrely, you just get to say it. You say, I, I meet the rules, you put CE on it, and then you need to keep records that prove that. Um, some products in the EU need testing like the e US system. Uh, many of them don't, but you need to go through the process of documenting it. And so assuming you want to do that responsibly, it's hard to understand what they are. So you need to bring in somebody else to help you test against EU standards. And again, that costs thousands to tens of thousands of dollars. Even though you can do it yourself, knowing how to do it is fairly expensive. And so those come in downstream. If you want to start selling through commercial platforms, they'll ask you to have that protection. And finally, these last few links, none of these have really settled. They're all evolving. This was a project to make a, like US or CE, a Fab Lab brand to say, this is a real Fab Lab product so that Carrefour wouldn't have that, but you could certify a real Fab Lab brand has it. There's a Fab Economy platform the most that was aimed at being a shop and supply chain. The most active part of that is a jobs platform of people wanting your skills. Uh, Fab Labs IO is growing into starting a market to buy and sell um, through that platform. Um, all of these are works in progress. None of these have reached critical mass. 
these have taken longer than the other parts of the ecosystem to settle, um, but I encourage looking at them and experimenting with them. This is starting to look at using the whole network itself as a platform to do the services I'm describing, to help you go from the prototype um, to distribution, scaling, marketing, production, but in ways that don't ship off to Shenzhen, but, but leverage the network. So each of these has a group of people behind them. I, I'd encourage reach out and experiment with them to think about how to use the identity of the network as part of the brand itself of products from the network, where once again, products can mean the widget, but products can mean the service. And Fab Academy is a great example of that. It's using the network for the value of teaching the knowledge that comes uh, through the network. So this was a tour over managing invention, managing IP, and ways to think about income and then incubation. Um, the first part of the assignment is develop a plan for disseminating your project. You don't have to do this, but assume success. Is it open source? Is it closed source? What kind of license? Is it crowdfunded? Do you go to an incubator? Assume success. You know, do you sell your drone or do you sell drone data? You know, uh, the scoreboard. You could sell the scoreboard or you could sell scorekeeping. You could sell a service where you go in to football matches and you provide the scorekeeping rather than selling the, the scoreboard itself. Um, Rolls-Royce doesn't increasingly sell jet engines. They sell propulsion. You get the engine for free and you pay for it the, the amount of time it moves your airplane forward. And it's a much better business model for them to sell the service rather than the engine. So develop a plan for your project. You don't have to do it, but it's to think through how would you disseminate it. And then the other assignment for this week is you need to start to prepare your presentation slide and the video clip. Next week's class, I'm gonna go through lots of final projects. And so we'll see examples of these. You can you know, start looking ahead to those. This is just the mechanics to make sure you can make the slide and you can make the video to be ready to finalize those in the final push. Okay, final questions or comments? Yeah, hello Neil. Um, I, uh, I want to ask about uh, research publishing as a method of dissemination of, uh, of uh, final projects. About, sorry, research? Oh yeah, uh, if, uh, if the final project uh, can be converted into a research paper and then this can be published and duplicated in other, uh, other fields. Meaning, are you saying is that a valid one or how to, are you asking how to do it or just is it okay to do it? Uh, is it okay to do it and how to do it? Okay, so the first answer is research is absolutely. So um, uh, yeah, let, let me take, take that as an example. Um, Tomas just submitted a big proposal to the European Union on the Fab City project as a research project, meaning the research project is to figure out what can the city make and how do you measure it not just simply sell antennas and radios or park benches, but quantify inputs and outputs to cities and measure it. Um, and so 
disseminating as research is a great idea. There's a but, which is to get research funding, if you take the questions here, like let me give you an example. A former student from my program, Saul Griffith, I showed this last week, um, energy map. Um, a former student, um, his comp runs other labs, which is, a, it, it's really just sort of whatever Saul wants. It's a company that does cool stuff. But they got funding from the Department of Energy to produce this site that maps all of the energy flowing through the economy. Huge project. Um, big project, um, you know, substantial funding to do something like that. And these questions I asked, to get real research funding from research agencies, you need deep answers to these questions. You need to show that in doing research, you're really building on past knowledge and extending it. And generally, one fab lab by itself can't meet that standard. And so what Tomas is doing in Fab City is a coordinated multi-site project to really tackle research funding. You'll need generally to work together to build a project team of a number of people and a number of sites to meet the threshold for research funding. It, it's a high threshold. You really need to show you're creating new knowledge beyond what anybody knows. And I'm interested in Fab Labs doing it, but it's a high threshold, not a low threshold. There's a smaller version, which is like targeted development for a company, but traditional research funding, it's a great thing to shoot for, but you need to collaborate in bigger groups typically to do that. But like as one example, um, uh, DARPA, which is a big research funding in the US, funded the FAB Foundation to work on FAB literacies. And that was a team of CBA at MIT and Eline Media Game Company and a number of groups where the Fab Foundation got the research funding, but under it was a whole group of project teams to deliver on it. Okay. Okay. Uh, Neil, this is Jens. Could you mention the value of selling a kit instead of selling a product? Um, say more. Yeah, because kits often don't need to have the same uh, um, certification requirements, and often producing parts locally is cheap, but assembly and finishing is expensive, and if you have the user do that, it can be very valuable. Yeah. So a great example of that is um, there are kit airplanes, um, where you get a kit to make your airplane, and um, uh, instead of buying a finished airplane where all the liability is on the airplane maker. If you make the kit airplane, they make the parts, you do the labor, and you take over. They have some responsibility that the kit does what the kit says, um, but you take over responsibility for what you're doing with the kit. Um, and so this is a, a big example of that. Yep. And like, to come back to the Hank, um, it, uh, that could easily be all of the above. 
Jens publishes the design, so anybody who wants one can make one. That's fine. Um, you kit them, and so you mass produce just pinions and rails, but people put them together. Um, so they do the labor, but, but you can produce the parts. And it wouldn't surprise me if there was value in just putting them into commercial production and mass producing some of them, who, people who wanted the machine, and all of those could coexist with each other. Yes, I'm also trying to to sort of uh, crack the code on on the service part. You know how you know how can you how can we sell the service around the knowledge and uh, and so on and 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 mentoring instead of selling the actual machines because there's a million companies in the world selling machines already. Right. So um, that's a great lead into Monday's recitation, and let's end on this. Part of what Gonzalo is interested in is what you've made is a robot. And right now, all it can do is fabricate, but it could um, cook food. It could pull stock. The, the same things you've done could do any many other sort of mechanisms, not just fabrication. And one of Gonzalo's, what he sees in us, I'll introduce him next week. Um, here, I'll take just a minute and we'll end on this. Um, he's from Moog Inc. This is up for next Monday. Um, they make the actuators for airplanes and submarines and all kinds of stuff. But for example, one of their customers is the Menzi Muck. And boy, am I a fan of them. Menzi Mucks are, um, uh, so Moog makes actuators and control systems. And then here is a wild use of them. So here, it looks like a digger. But unlike a normal digger, let's say you got to there, now you need to go here. The entire Menzi muck is recon sort of reconfigurable and deformable. And so it can do th things like that. And so the connection to your question is, your ability to make custom automated motion potentially has many more applications than just fabrication. And what he wants to talk about is personal accessible automation as the, the, the wrapper around fabrication that ha may have many more uses than just cutting out parts. Automating things for people would be a great example. And so you go into a business and you help them automate, but every single one is different, customized to what they need. I, I compare what we're doing to, to music making. Like we start with playing other people's pieces of music, like we replicate existing machines, but the long-term goal is to be able to compose our own music, stuff that don't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, that's it. your question is a great lead into this Monday recitation. So in closing, all of you need tracking pages um, you're going to run out of time. Um, uh, we here, if we go to um, it was Julia, and if we go to her, um, was it this page? Yeah, so she has this page where every week she's tracking updates on the project, what she did, where she's going. And so in the final week, she's going to have just one little entry to add at the end. Um, that's what you need to be doing.
um, build your tracking pages. Okay. So happy project development. <clears throat> See you Monday for automation and then the final regular class next Wednesday. Bye. 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 Bye.